Today marks the beginning of Advent, the season that the Church has set aside in which we prepare our hearts and minds to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Traditionally, this preparation of heart and mind has focused on three Advents, or three comings, of Jesus. There's the first coming, the day when God so humbled himself that he was born on the earth in a small town in Palestine somewhere around 6 BC. Our preparations to celebrate the birth of Jesus include telling the stories of the prophets who foretold the coming Messiah. We tell the stories of Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth and Zechariah. We tell the stories of angels and emperors and shepherds and wise men. Every year we retell these stories so that we remember just how amazing a gift we have in God giving himself to us. Advent also helps us to prepare for the second coming of Jesus. We don't know when this is going to occur. It could happen before this sermon is over. Some of you might really wish for that. It could be countless years later. But the scriptures are unified in telling us two things. First, don't waste your time trying to figure out exactly when Jesus will return. Only the Father knows that. And second, be ready for when it's time, he will come quickly and decisively. So the scriptures say, be on the alert, keep short accounts, Put your trust in Jesus now. Don't delay. But the third aspect of Advent is the emphasis on living in Christ now. Jesus has already come on Christmas, and Jesus will come again in the new kingdom. But Advent helps us to make the most of the present by reminding us to be about the work of Jesus in our devotion to him and in service to others and in our care for one another. There is a truth in spiritual formation that we are never in neutral. That means that we're always either being formed more in the image of Jesus or being deformed into something much less than Jesus. We never merely stand still. Now, there's so many factors at play in what forms and deforms a person. I mean, habits and hobbies and the company we keep and the things that we desire in life, all of that comes into play. But one of the things that forms our opinions and desires that we may not be thinking about too critically is the media we consume. So things like music, and literature, poetry, and film, all of these types of creative media have a way of slipping, slipping in concepts and ideology past our critical thinking and into our hearts. Now, of course, this can be a good thing. Think about maybe a song, a beautiful song that opens up your heart to beauty and joy in the world. But it can also be a deforming thing, like maybe a raunchy comedy that encourages us to join in the berating of certain groups of people. So I thought it would be fun to take a look at some of the most popular Christmas movies and to explore how they can act to form us in positive ways or to deform us through their ideas and their concepts. Now, last December, we had a poll in the congregation and asked for your favorite Christmas movies, along with an explanation of why they're your favorites. There were so many good ones to choose from, but in the end, we could only pick five. And today, we're going to focus on How the Grinch Stole Christmas. We'll be looking at some of the biblical themes presented in the movie and offer some critique here and there where it's needed. But first, just a couple of caveats before we get into it. First, I'm assuming that you've seen this film. Every Friday before the Sunday sermons, uh, we're going to have a public viewing on Zoom that's free of charge. 
if you can't make that for some reason, all of these movies we're going to be talking about are pre-scheduled, so you can read that in the weekly update. They're available for rent, and many of you already have streaming services like Netflix or maybe a cable package where a lot of these films are so popular they're, they're free almost most nights of the week uh, during the holiday season. So I'm assuming that you've seen them. Second, I'm not going to do a deep dive into any of these films, or I'm not going to do any sort of film review. I'm mostly interested and how they form us positively or whether or not uh, they could have a deforming effect. And I'll try and point those things out. And third, I'm going to root my observations in the scripture. Scripture is the standard of truth and beauty that we can build on. Film can be a conversation partner with scripture, but we shouldn't ever expect it to be orthodox in doctrine. Film is meant to entertain, not to build a life upon. Okay, so with those introductory comments out of the way, let's dig into this film. We're introduced to two kind of main characters. There's the Who's as a collective who live in Whoville, and as their name suggests, they could be just about anyone. The Who's are a small community of like-minded people who seem to share in common customs and culture. The Who's are characteristically joyful, festive, communal, and apparently very deep sleepers because they let this guy come in in the middle of the night and stole all their possessions and nobody woke up except for like a two-year-old. Now, the other main character is the Grinch. We don't know what put him in his Grinchy attitude, right? We don't know how he got in his bad mood to begin with, but one thing we learn right away is that his heart is two sizes too small. The emphasis on the heart both being small and later on in the film when it grows three times larger has deep biblical resonance. Not the shrinking and, and enlarging part, but just the emphasis on the heart in general. The word heart occurs over 700 times in the Bible. And in the biblical worldview, the heart is the center of the human being. Like in our worldview, in the modern worldview, we typically think of the head, the brain, as the center of everything. But in the ancient world, in the biblical worldview, it was the heart. That was the CPU of the human being. The heart is seen as the gateway to faith and to joy or to callousness and to ruin. It is from the heart that comes any good and from the heart that comes any evil. And the heart, we're told, is duplicitous and it's hard to trust. And we're told over and over again to guard our hearts for from the heart flows the wellspring of life. Whatever got the Grinch set on his Grinchy outlook in life, he did not help himself by ruminating on the things that he hated about Whoville. Instead of guarding his heart, I, I don't know, by doing something positive, like finding some constructive hobbies, he, he seems to instead spend his spare time fretting about how some other people were living their lives. I mean, this guy is 10,000 feet up on these beautiful mountains. Why doesn't he ski some awesome lines on these slopes? That's what I would be doing. But in all seriousness, I think there's a valid warning for us here. Bitterness and anger and frustration with others has a way of sinking into our hearts and turning our grief into a poison that crushes our joy and makes other people miserable. We see this all too often in our own world because of the the political climate in our country right now. And on top of the political climate, we're also in a pandemic, which makes it so much more difficult to actually interact with people face to face. So what we have typically done in this season is 
just regurgitated rhetoric on social media and digital out outlets, right? It's so easy to retreat into the echo chambers of social media, where algorithms conveniently filter those with the pointing views. Our news feeds are filled with people ranting about the other side, and if we aren't careful, our hearts can shrink and harden towards vast groups of people who are also made in the image of God. The Grinch isolated himself, and the distance from the Who's made it easy for his heart to shrink and for him to hate. During Advent, we prepare to worship a God who gave his life for people who crucified him, who hated him. How can we make sure that our hearts stay soft and warm toward others, even our enemies? This is the way, the way of Jesus. Okay, let's take another look at a theme I, uh, that I see in the Grinch. We've already discussed how tending to our heart is our responsibility. But now let's, let's consider our actions as a group and how those actions might impact others around us. There's this scene early in the film where the Grinch hears the Who's preparing for Christmas. And the narrator tells us that what the Grinch hated most of all was the noise. The noise of their playing and celebrating and feasting and worst of all, the noise, 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 noise of their singing. Now, at this point in the film, the Grinch still assumes that the joy and thus the noise of the Who's in Whoville is all based on outward things. It's the food of their festivities or the toys or just their stuff, their material, commercial possessions that make them happy. And he just can't stand it. He doesn't yet know that there's more to their celebrations and to their traditions than just material abundance. But this is a reason to pause and to consider something for ourselves. We are a church, a group of people who have come to know that our hearts are duplicitous and small and that we need Jesus to enlarge us, to fill us and to give us his life. And because he has done that in us, we're prone to sing and to celebrate and to feast and to serve and to proclaim Merry Christmas and joy to the world. But I wonder if there's a warning here for us, especially those of us who have lived this way and practiced these traditions for years upon years upon years. We should be careful that we don't forget why we feast and why we decorate and why we sing and serve and declare the birth of Jesus. Because if we forget, or if we just mail it in and go through the motions, are we not in danger of just being noise to the world, to our neighbors? Joy without acknowledging the pain of the world is insensitive and it's offensive. If we are only words and songs but we have no substance, if we have no worship and service, then we are, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we're just noisy gongs. If we say churchy things, but we do it without love, then our deeds are worthless. And I dare say, we will enrage the skeptical Grinches who hear nothing but noise without substance. Now let me pause and insert an important nuance to what I've just said. I am not implying that you and I have to feel love and to feel joy 
or to feel and experience unshakable faith or goodwill towards your fellow man in order to make your Christmas celebration like worship and valid. When Paul is talking about love in 1 Corinthians 13, he isn't saying that you have to feel good or to feel warm or to feel like some caricature of the spirit-filled Christian, right? In order to be a true follower of Jesus. What he is talking about is doing the right things for the right reasons. Because love is a verb. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do is to be honest with the state that we're actually in. Like, we can participate in worship and we can do it as the quiet one on the Zoom with the blacked out screen because we're grieving the loss of a loved one at this time of year. Or we can partake in a family feast, loving those who are around the table while not agreeing on everyone's politics or being honest with our own depression or fear of economic uncertainty. A noisy Christian is one who neglects reality and is unwilling to be real. But maybe what the world needs most is to see the church and to see each of us who make up the church to be authentically joyful when we're actually joyful and authentically struggling when we're struggling and authentically desperate for Jesus as our hope because we feel let down by the world, because we feel let down by the world's systems and its half-baked solutions. So what does the world see when they see you and me? What do they hear? Not from the Christians on TV or in the news. We cannot control the garbage that's out there. But what do they hear from me and you and our community? So already, we've seen how this simple Christmas film can form us by encouraging us to guard our hearts and encouraging us to be authentic in how we approach Christmas worship and service and life. Now let's get to the best part of the story, the transformation of the Grinch. So he's stolen all their stuff, all of their food, and he thinks he's stolen Christmas. And he's up at the top of the mountain with his sleigh full of their Christmas trappings, and he waits with anticipation for the Who's down in Whoville to awake on Christmas morning. And he can see it in his mind. He, he sees in his mind their jaws dropping, and he hears in his ears that they're going to cry, Boo-hoo! But then something happens. And he hears something, but it's not crying. It's singing. It's joy. Christmas came anyway. And it came without ribbons, or presents, or pudding, or roast beast. And then he says, and I quote, Maybe Christmas doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. Now, why would he come to this conclusion? It was the joyful witness of the Who's in Whoville. And what conclusion would the world come to when they see us? How is the church the joyful witness of Jesus? How can we be hopeful in Jesus even in these dark times? This scene reminds me of the story in Zacchaeus from Luke 19, 1-10. Like the Grinch, Zacchaeus had hardened his heart toward his fellow humans. He'd been contracted by the Romans to collect taxes from his own oppressed people. And on top of that, he was notorious for taking more than the standard tax so that he could make himself rich at the expense of others. But he begins to hear this buzz 
a rumor around town that there's this man named Jesus that everybody's talking about. He was supposed to be special. He was like described as joyful, but wise, powerful, yet humble. He was holy and safe. Could it be true? Or was it just the sort of preacher who made noise, 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 noise that his shriveled heart had already come to hate? But then something unexpected happens. In the Grinch, the unexpected joy of the Who's without their material possessions, that was the turning point for him. But for Zacchaeus, it was the unexpected hospitality of Jesus. It was the undeserved friendship of God that caused Zacchaeus' heart to grow that day. But this transformation was not merely like a change of mind or even a change of perspective. True transformation in Christ happens when we repent, when we are set on a new way of life that affects our hearts and our minds and changes the way that we feel and the way that we function in the world. The Grinch gave back all that he had taken, and Zacchaeus gives back up to four times the amount that he had taken from other people. But there's one final piece in this radical transformation. Yes, it involves remorse and confession and repentance. But the final piece is that the repentant person, the forgiven person, must be accepted into the community. That they're given a place at the table. For Zacchaeus, this meant that he shared a meal with Jesus. Jesus allowed Zacchaeus to serve him, to host him for dinner. How many people in the world can say that they got to host and serve the Lord Jesus? But this little tax collector from Jericho, this great sinner, is part of that number, and it changed him forever. No longer would he need to walk alone, because now he was a disciple, and that meant he had instant family. For the Grinch, we see that not only did he give back what he had stolen, but he became part of the community. He was there carving the roast beast at Christmas dinner. He was part of the community and the family. Part of human salvation in Christ is to belong to the community of Christ. How can we make space at our table for those whom God wants to bring uh, repentance and to transform their hearts? Change is hard enough by itself. A transformation by Jesus will often mean a great loss to a person's whole way of life. How can our table, the tables in our homes and the table uh, of the church, how, how can they be open and joyful enough to provide a place for people to find a new family and a new place to serve and a new place to be served? Maybe you're listening today and you felt that your heart has shrunk somewhat. Maybe you long for the joy of the heart enlarged by the love of Jesus. Fear not. For me, and especially when I'm feeling lost or down, the most potent gospel concept in this whole film is the folly of the title itself, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. You can't steal Christmas. You can't stop it from coming any more than you can stop yourself from being born. There's an inevitability about the incarnation of Jesus. He was born right under the nose of the Roman Empire and Herod, the king of the province. He was foretold for centuries. He was foretold by angels. He came and he will come and he is among us. And that is something that we have no control over. We can't do anything to stop him. 
And we can't do anything to speed him up. We can't stop Christmas because in God's good grace, he has come and he will come and he will meet us where we are right now. And isn't that such good news?